This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone, welcome Christine to another edition of Wireless Books, brought to you all by the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, which is a library, and I think it's a good time now to have a a wee bit of a push, because it is Christmas coming up, and what do you get, that book lover in your life? Hopefully a membership of the Athenaeum Library. Yes, um, if you come in and buy a membership for a a friend or a relative or a loved one or yourself s- someone you admire <laughs> um we can we can do you a, a little gift card and yes so you have some, something to give them actually on the day rather than saying oh i've got you this <laughs> and of course the price is $69 which includes the gst because we all owe money to the government <laughs> And quite right, how else would we have our fabulous roads? (laughs) And all our other wonderful facilities. (laughs) That's right. So anyway, another fortnight has just flown by. I really enjoyed the books. I have to say I loved The Moving Finger by Agatha Christie because, of course, I've seen lots of screen adaptations of it, which I've loved. I really loved the original novel. Mm. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. I, I enjoyed that one as well. So anyway, should we should we get on to something a bit more contemporary? Oh, why not? Let's not be, you know, stuck in the past. No, we can be we can be both. <laughs> We're multifaceted. <laughs> now I've got the latest Joe Nesbo. It's called The Nighthouse. And it's sort of a just departure for him because usually well, he's best known for his Harry Hole novels, which are pretty violent crimes. And this one, it's sort of a bit of everything in a way. It starts off as a horror. It's about this young boy whose parents have been killed in a tragic fire, and he's sent to live with his grandparents in this remote community. And, of course, he's the the disturbed boy from the city who doesn't fit in. And one day he sees a classmate of his enter a phone book and be um, taken almost as a portal through the telephone of the phone book and disappear, and which it just sounds bizarre, doesn't it? And he he seems to be the person who everything's, everybody thinks caused his classmate Tom's disappearance, and everybody he um, tries to, to, to tell the truth to, they just don't believe him. So you've got this this horror thing theme going and this spooky phone box outside a spooky house. And then partway through it, it's sort of in three parts, and then it changes into something else, which is more of a psychological um, thriller. Yes, so it's quite very interesting. It's kind of weird, but interesting. And a big departure as well. Yeah, good on this author. Well, I guess... He's quite a prolific writer, so I guess he probably gets tired just doing the thing that has made him famous. 
I think all authors tend to be a bit that way, even the ones like Agatha Christie, she wrote uh, sort of her romance novels under a different Mary name. Mary Westacott, was it, or was it another name? That was mm, one of them. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so. Mm, good oh. But earmarked for me, madam? Mm, possibly. Ooh. Now, I've got the latest Val McDermott, which is a Catherine, a Catherine Perry thriller, and she, Catherine, Karen, Karen works in cold cases, and she's she's one of these police officers that that walks her own beat, sort of thing. And everybody, all her superiors, um, are on the way are trying to get rid of her, but she she is too successful at solving the crimes for them too. That sort of thing. But anyway, it's set in Edinburgh, and she's in the cold case, and um. She, this unusual thing happens that an author's manuscript appears to be the blueprint print of a natural crime. There's been an, a university student who vanished on her own doorstep and an, an author who died of a brain aneurysm leaving behind a manuscript which talks of of committing the perfect crime and the parallels between the disappearance of the student and in the manuscript are just so so very extreme that Karen um, has to dig deeper and it's not really a classic cold case because I think the woman only disappeared recently so really it's a hot case but, yeah. in, but she, can, she can't help herself so she's got this Part of it is is actual. You get to read the manuscript of the guy's um, work, and it's also set during COVID. So there's lots of things that are are different because of COVID, and everybody has to follow COVID um, protocol. Yeah, mm. protocols. And so it's yeah, it's very very interesting. Well, she's a cracker writer. Well, you know, if you're a Val McDermott, mm-hmm. well, you're just going to lap yep. it up and mm. and ask for more. And the funny thing is, too, and I'm sure many, many, many readers would uh, share my sentiments that like. So if a, a novel uh, is set in a, a place that you've got fond memories of that you love, you don't live there anymore, such as Edinburgh. I love Edinburgh. I just love being able to read of all the places I went. And Oh, yes, and it just also brings back memories as well, just walking down those streets, mm. going into that um, particular cafe or or something. It's just part of the joy of um, reading as well. Well, yes, um, if you read Vanda Simon, she quite often, you know, she sticks in cafes and stuff. And yeah. stuff. yeah. That is charming. Actually, it just reminds me, of, if um, you watch Grand Designs New Zealand, whenever they're featured in um, Dunedin, there's always a scene where the where the um, the guy who presents it is driving to see the completed house, and and inevitably when it's in Dunedin, so you know the area, you think I always think, hmm, I don't think I'd be I, going there yeah, that way. Why are you going that way? <laughs> Did he start <laughs> off at the Albatross Colony? <laughs> hmm. yeah. Well, there's yes, and um, I saw um, that episode a couple of weeks ago about the old Sunday school yes. hall, and just fantastic. But yes, mm. the host was driving from the Albatross, the Albatross Colony, probably, <laughs> but because 
the scenery of the coast is just so beautiful there. Well, mm. you know that's why they're doing it. Yeah. It's just it's amusing for mm. when you know an area. Mm. <gasps> now I'm very mm. excited about this new book because I love Chris Hammer. Mm. It's the Seven, and of course this is a standalone. Um, and it's, it's now it's a, a country town in in Australia which has an Aboriginal name, and I'm you're a wondery. And it's um, it's been founded by seven um, families who um, controlled all the water rights, and they've lorded it over their district for a century, growing even more rich and powerful. But now, in startling circumstances, one of their own is found dead in a ditch, and homicide detectives Ivan Lurick and Nell Buchanan are sent to investigate. And so... The victim, um, he had a friend who was um, killed 30 years ago, so is that linked to it? Or is it the long-forgotten story of a servant girl on the brink of the Great War? What are the secrets they are so desperate to keep hidden? And so... All I know about Chris Hammer is that I'm going to find out all the answers to all those questions in the last two pages. (laughs) Probably more as well, and he is. Um, he's also included. It talks about the servant girl. They it includes the letters that the servant girl wrote to her mother. So you sort of have the a cool outsider writing about these people, and um, so you get you sort of have an insight to them that possibly the detectives don't have immediately. I might have to take the week off work just so that I can devour the seven. <laughs> okay, and finally, I've got a book that you you'll have no temptation. It's um, by <laughs> Sophie Kinsella, and it's called The Burnout. Now, Sophie Kinsella is best known for her um, um, shopaholic. I series. love those books. Well, I loved the first one. Yeah. Mm. See, I don't really, I don't particularly like the shopaholic ones. Simply because I think she's just, uh, her financial behaviour is just too oh, silly for words. It? <laughs> Look, it's hilarious when she actually did put her credit card in the freezer to freeze it. It was a great book, yeah. But anyway, I have loved her other um, ones that she's done. And so this is um, not a shopaholic one, it's a different one. And it's about a woman, Sasha, who is working um, in... Um, with at an IT company and there's like a, a guru guy that's running it and she's in the publicity or marketing department and she just is overwhelmed with drink I don't drink, sorry, <laughs> with work. Uh, who's overrun with drink? <laughs> <laughs> it might be me, if only. <laughs> and um so she just has a she decides to that she's she quits her job and she goes to stay in a hotel in Devon where she used to go as a child and um, she every every summer her f- her family would go to Devon and stay in this, this hotel and so she's got all these fond memories. So she turns up in the wintertime and she seems to be the only person there and the hotel's sort of run down and, and they've got all these desperate attempts to try and um, encourage people to come and like they're do, running an antique type fair in the foyer so there's all this old 
furniture which is not in good condition. So it's just everything is not right. And she's sort of pretend she's trying to go on a health kick. So she's told them that she requires to have cow smoothies and um, is not, you know, eating macrobiotically or, or whatever. And of course, she isn't really at all. So she. But they have these um, private luxury um, huts on the beach, and so she, and she's complimentary given the use of this hut, and so she goes down there to, to eat chocolate sneakily and <laughs> and read trashy magazines rather than not. She's supposed to be down there doing cold water swimming and being. So anyway, her um, idyll is is broken into by. A, a grumpy man who she actually saw on the train having um, making a, a young toddler cry because he was <laughs> <laughs> quite quite aggressively standing up for his rights, and so so she takes against him just immediately, and of course that. But they they end up spending more and more time together, and um, it turns out that he's also there because he's also burnt out, and they form a bond, and yes. It's an enjoyable, lovely read, but um, probably not for you, Beth. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it is. Are you burnt out? Uh, I think, do you know what, during the summer break, not that I'm getting any holidays, but um, that sounds like a lovely book to read to while away. She she is good at what she does. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So we have a little break and and then I'll annoy you with um, more George V. Oh, God. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. Breakover. Okay, so once again, this is from George V, Never a Dull Moment by Jane Ridley. The king and queen undertook punishing visits to the industrial north. This is during the First World War. Sleeping and dining in the comfort of the royal train, which had been fitted out on the orders of Edward VII to resemble the royal yacht. Delightful. (laughs) Allowing them to dispense with stays in great houses. In May 1917, they spent a week inspecting munitions factories in Lancashire. While the king spoke to the men and presented medals, the queen visited hospitals and women workers. In June, the royal train took them to the shipyards of the northeast. I feel I could almost make a ship, wrote May, after long tiring days spent inspecting shipbuilding yards and ironworks. So much walking on such rough, uneven ground. So there you go. That's Tough um, life. Well, you know, it probably was. And just this final one, which is also short. The Kaiser abdicated on the 9th of November 1918 and fled to the Netherlands. How the mighty are fallen, wrote George. He thought his cousin had utterly ruined his country and himself, and I look upon him as the greatest criminal known for having plunged the world into this ghastly war, which has lasted four years and three months, with all its misery. George felt very deeply that the end of the war had come about with William escaping justice and regretted that we shall not be able to bring to book the Kaiser. But his anger against his cousin soon cooled. When Lloyd George campaigned to extradite the Kaiser and put him on trial for war crimes, the king was furious. To his relief, the Dutch refused all attempts at extradition, and the Kaiser lived on as a country gentleman at Durham. 
Now, Interesting. I, I, I'm mm. with Lloyd George there. I really think that the Kaiser, um, yeah, he's a war criminal. And, That's um, right. Yeah, should have swung mm-hmm. for it. But anyway, mm. but um, I guess it's kind of nice that in the end, family feeling won over George, and he forgave his cousin, sort of. <laughs> but anyway, now I've I've been reading this old book, um, Cousin Randolph: The Life of Randolph Churchill by Anita Leslie, and of course um, Randolph Churchill was Winston Churchill's only son. Or he had about five children, but all the others were girls. And Randall, of course, is famous for, um, well, just for being quite obnoxious. He was born on um, the 28th of May in 1911 um, in London while his father was home secretaries. And it was... um, just three weeks before George V's coronation. And Clementine was actually breastfeeding, she breastfed her children and she couldn't, she wanted to go to the coronation, but of course the way it was set up, you had to be you had to be in the Abbey all, all day essentially. And she couldn't, she couldn't bring the baby and she couldn't leave him because she was breastfeeding. And the king heard about her plight and he arranged that she would be um, take, taken up by a special royal carriage and delivered just before the ceremony. So she arrived just after all the duchesses were seated and um, then she I was able to watch the crowning and then she was able to leave early so that Randolph didn't miss a feed. So that's sweet. Now I'm just going to tell these, um, read out these stories about his bad behaviour because they are just so extreme and they're basically all come after the Second World War. During the Second World War, he famously um, married a young woman who barely knew. They married after three um, weeks, and um, he, he had, they had a, a boy together, and um, then he felt he was able to join the war effort because he'd, he'd kept the, the Churchill line going. And after the war, he, they divorced, and she, she went on for an exciting career as well. So... Um, Around, this is after the war, Winston Churchill was introduced to a well-known French lady who bore the name of Paul Roger, which happened to be Winston's favourite champagne. <laughs> the old man could hardly believe his ears. What was, what is her name again, he asked. After it was repeated, he turned back to her in admiration. A most beautiful lady, and what a beautiful name. Randolph met Madame Paul Roger soon after and immediately paid court to her. But Randolph's methods of flirting tended to be rather crude. When she refused his pleas, he asked her the reason why. Laughingly, she replied that he carried too much weight. How much would you like me to lose? inquired Randolph. Fourteen kilos, she replied, and thought no more about it. But Randolph took her literally. (laughs) He travelled back to England, bantered hard, and at last he obtained a weighing machine ticket that proved he had indeed lost fourteen kilos. Back to France he hurried, and according to Madame Paul Roger, arrived while she was reading quietly in her garden. She had long forgotten her demand, and to her horror and amazement, Randolph snatched her up and proceeded to carry her into the house, looking for her bedroom. He really thought she'd made a promise. Madame escaped with difficulty, and Randolph was very hand-dog. The Paul Roger family dined out on this story for many a long year. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you behave in the upper classes. 
1952, Evelyn Waugh and Randolph held a tipsy but undoubtedly sincere argument about Clarissa Churchill, who was a cousin of Randolph's, brought up as a Roman Catholic, who had announced her engagement to Anthony Eden, a divorced man. Randolph kept the line, What business is of yours? You are not the Cardinal Archbishop or the editor of the tablet, or even like me, a cousin. And so Clarissa is best, she married Anthony Eden, and she's best known for the line during um, the Suez crisis that she felt that the Nile flowed through her drawing room because they had all the crisis meetings at uh-huh. number 10. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and she actually only died um, about the last ten years or so because I remember reading her obituary, you know, relatively recently. So <laughs> there you go. Now Evelyn War and Randolph actually um, were commandos together, and they were billeted together in um, Yugoslavia, um, doing liaison work with um, Tito's um, part- partisans. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. Now, Randolph was never his best at balls. He drank too much and champagne made him more than usually pugnacious. <laughs> Maybe it had not been entirely his fault when soon after the war, Maureen, Marchioness of Duffin and Ava, attacked him on the dance floor for not having written when Basil, her husband, was killed. Lady Wymouth, the hostess, watched pulled while his ears were boxed. He spluttered but could not really answer because he had cared deeply for Basil Dufferin. Indeed, that may have been the reason he had not been able to bring himself to pen a note. Anyway, a scene occurred, the life of which seldom occurs at a, like of which seldom occurs at a London dance. Far worse was to come. In this case, he was entirely to blame. He came in after a dinner party at which Lady Pamela Barry was one of the guests. The host had retired to bed because banking demanded his attention in the early morning. After he'd gone, Randolph, Randolph blew in, having had, as usual, rather too much to drink. He joined the general conversation, then took Pamela to task about overing, which um, Randolph had been uh, renting and um, her and her husband had brought under his nose. A most unseemly row started. In vain, the hostess tried to impose peace between the contestants. Finally, in a peace state, Randolph shot the parting rejoinder at Pamela, who was a very dark beauty. As she turned away, eyes flashing, he said, Look here, my girl, you'd better go home and have a shave. You seem not to have used that electric razor given you for Christmas. Lady Pamela took umbrage at this ungallant remark, What a surprise, and vowed loudly that she would never speak to him again. And although she had known him since childhood, she never did. The other guests were, of course, horrified, and the hostess near to swooning. Next morning, her husband, who had missed the fracas, came down and said, What a successful dinner party it was last night. We must give a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I probably, probably fainted. Um, now, this is um, a, a neighbour of um, Randolph's when he found, he found um, another country home in store, and... Um, his, the neighbour, his wife Nancy, wrote the following account of life in Suffolk. I didn't know Randolph until he came to live near to us. He often used to come over for lunch and dinner. Quite early on I went on strike about dinner because I wasn't prepared to sit up half the night. When sober he was the best company I'd ever known. 
He never moderated his language or his stories in front of the young, so they adored him. They also loved him dearly on and off. There was a six-month-off period on my part after he published in the Evening Standard a letter I had wrote to him concerning his book on Anthony Eden, with all my smell- spelling mistakes included. <laughs> what I would call his rages, he called warming to the subject. There may have been some truth in this. By normal standards, he would appear to be in the throes of a blood row, but if he came in during one of these performances to say lunch was ready, he could turn it off like a tap, and by the time he got to the dining room, he would be talking about something else. One weekend, my brother John was staying with us, and Randolph came to lunch with a friend, Dick. Dick was quite a talker, and there were, as you imagine, few pauses in the conversation. My brother contributed nothing, and I asked him afterwards why he'd been so silent. He said he'd been to Oxford with Randolph. In fact, Randolph had been in the room directly above him, and he had learned many years ago that the only way to deal with Randolph if he didn't want to have a row was to remain silent, which John did. At a later date, Randolph said to me, I always found your brother rather a dull dog, so I told him why. Randolph talked the sim quietly and obviously minded, for afterwards my brother said that whenever he met Randolph in the White's Club, he would go out of his way to make polite conversation. And that's the thing uh, about Randolph. Although he was always having fights with people and being furious and disclaiming things at the top of his voice, he never held a grudge, and he 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 wanted to be liked, and he always found it's like a schoolboy. He was always sort of hurt that people people didn't understand him and and didn't see past his his strange ways. <laughs> oh, thank you, Christine. It's that time again. Until yes. next time, everyone. Yes, happy happy read. reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.